You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, just reach in the seats in front of you. And you can find Mark chapter 6 on page 841. So for some of you who have been here for several weeks, hopefully your Bibles flop open to Mark chapter 6. For others of you that this might be your first Sunday, we are delighted that you will join us. You're not too late, but we are six weeks in, six chapters in, and we have been enjoying the gospel of Mark. Well, as you're turning there, I just want to give an announcement to our church family that we as leaders understand the responsibility as leaders is to not just live in the moment. We celebrate what God is doing in the moment, but we're also constantly evaluating the trajectories, the trends, and we're trying to get out ahead in the planning. So many of you know that we have enjoyed this new building for now right at about 12 months, 12 months where we've actually been able to use it regarding COVID, that's why. And as we have, we have been blessed by how many people God has brought to us, and what we've learned is that there are three levels of capacity that are being approached. One of them is parking, one of them is kids' ministry, and one of them is auditorium. Now, you might look around here in second service and say, well, there are plenty of seats. Well, in first service, especially over the last month, there have not been a whole lot of seats. And so what we have tried to do as leaders is to evaluate this and to prepare and to try to avoid as much as we can another construction project. And all God's pastor Jeff said, amen. So what we're going to do is this summer, we're going to adjust the service times. And we are going to bump our service times up 30 minutes. So beginning June 6th, we will start our first service at 8.30, our second service at 10.30, and we're going to bribe you with Hertz Donuts. How does that sound? Well, one of the reasons for that is we have found from the feedback of young parents that they don't like to have their kids be getting home around 1 o'clock after being here at a service that lets out at 12.30. So we're sensitive to that. We're mindful of that. And what we're hoping by bumping this up 30 minutes is it will kind of even out the attendance and help us be able to avoid some of those capacity approaches that we're experiencing. But if God wants to continue to grow us, we will consider other options as well. So June 6th, You'll start to see emails, you'll start to see signs, but we will start a new service time, 8.30 and 10.30 for the summer, and then we'll see where it goes after that. So Mark chapter 6, we approach a topic that I hope is familiar to you if you've been coming to Ascend for any stretch of time. I hope if you've come to our visitor lunch or our new attendee lunch, or you've come to our foundations class that you've heard a word that summarizes what we're about as a church. That word is discipleship. And this isn't just our word. This isn't something that we came up with. It's actually what we observe Jesus to not only model, but to also instruct. Jesus picked for himself out of all of the crowds, 12 what? Disciples. Jesus has been amassing disciples, followers of him. He's taught his disciples through parables and helped them understand. This is what Jesus modeled, but it's also what he instructed. You can write down Matthew chapter 28 and verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. Make disciples. That was Jesus' final instruction to his 
followers, make disciples. But unfortunately, I think the topic discipleship has been relegated to a churchy term, much like topics like faith or grace. And before you know it, we use these terms a lot without actually biblically defining them or biblically living them out. And so the gift that Mark gives us in these few verses is the gift of being able to see behind the curtain of discipleship, to see what biblical discipleship actually is, to see how Jesus modeled it, but most of all, to be able to evaluate, are you and am I actually a disciple, and are we making disciples? So look at the big idea in your notes. Discipleship is the process instructed and modeled by Jesus. Again, the question is, are you a disciple? Let me read this passage, and I have to confess to you that when I first read this last week in preparation for this sermon, I began to think, how am I going to come up with 45 minutes in these 13 verses? And I can tell you there is not enough time. It is rich. And part of the application of that is we're going to be starting, Lord willing, a podcast in a few weeks that will be a biweekly podcast that will allow us to be able to spend about 20 or 30 minutes digging down into the passages that we study together to be able to find more treasures and nuggets of gold that we aren't able to discuss in the brief time that we have together. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, son of Mary? brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid on his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The first aspect of true biblical discipleship is that I want you to see that it is introduced by teaching. Would you write that down? Discipleship is introduced by teaching. We see it modeled in verse 2. It says that Jesus on Sabbath began to teach in the synagogue. Now, let me just pause right here. Why did Jesus on Sabbaths go to the synagogue? Well, there's a lot of opinions on that out there, and it's interesting that there was also another apostle in the book of Acts that made this his practice. Do you remember who that was? It was none other than Paul. 
as he traveled throughout all of his missionary travels and would enter into these Gentile cities. He would first go to the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, why is that? Well, as I said, there's different opinions. One of the opinions I watched on Right Now Media, which, by the way, if you haven't signed up for that free service, you get it free through Ascend Church, even if you're visiting today. So you can stop by the info center and get instructions how to do that. But I watched a study by Matt Chandler and Brian Loritz as they were talking about race and the gospel. And there were some good things that they had to say, but one of the things that they said is that Paul would enter the synagogue on Sabbath because of racial sensitivity. Now, if all we were doing is looking at that topic with modern eyes and being informed by our contemporary context, that might make sense. But I don't think as you study the New Testament, that's the reason. Another reason people give is that Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And people will say that the Bible has a priority on ethnic Israel. That ethnic Israel somehow has a spiritual superiority in the redemptive plan of God. And, and I think, again, if you're just looking at that verse, or if you've been influenced by Zionism, then you might say, well, yes, that's why Jesus went to the synagogue. That's why Paul went to the synagogue. But I think as you look at the whole of Scripture, that's not the case. I think Jesus went to the synagogue and did so on Sabbath, just like Paul did. And we can actually find that. Would you turn over to Luke chapter 4? Luke chapter 4, and I would just encourage you, put a, a marker in there, put a finger in there, because we'll be flipping back and forth. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, I believe is the same account that Mark unpacks in Mark 6. Now, there are different scholars who have different opinions. They might, many of them say that there are two accounts of Jesus going to Nazareth, and I respect that, but as I wrestled with it, I, I think Luke is explaining the same details that Mark is explaining Luke just gives us more information. So it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, there again, you can see this was something did routinely, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Why? He knew that in sa on Sabbath at the synagogue, the scriptures would be read. And it's interesting in Providence that Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah, and look what he read in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. The reason why Jesus went to synagogue on Sabbath. The reason why Paul went to synagogues on Sabbath is because on Sabbath at synagogues, that's a tongue twister, isn't it? The scriptures would be read. The Torah would be read. The Old Testament would be read. And just as Jesus modeled to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, the Old Testament is designed to lay the foundation and provide the roadmap that gets us to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And so what Paul did and what Jesus did is go to the place in a conversation, go to the place in a life context that will be a springboard to get to Jesus. 
Beloved, remember that. When it comes to discipleship, the introduction to discipleship is to get to the springboard that leads us to Jesus. And so Jesus did that on Sabbath, back in Mark 6. Remember, just leave your finger there in Luke 4. He is on Sabbath, and he began to teach in the synagogue. Listen, Jesus taught. I mean, yes, he healed. Yes, he cast out demons. But if you're going to look for one word that describes the ministry and the mission of Jesus, it was teaching. We see that in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. As Mark is summarizing Jesus' ministry, he proclaimed, he preached. In Mark chapter 1, he went into the synagogue on Sabbath and he taught in his organic off-site conversations with his disciples. He taught when he healed people. He taught on the boat calming the storm. He taught, he taught, he taught, he taught. Why? Because that is the introduction to the process of discipleship. But what did he teach? Did he teach about the weather? A little bit. Did he teach about people's lives and about family? Yes. But he taught the word, and he taught the gospel. I remember I was going to a Southern Baptist church for a while, which this is not a slight on the Southern Baptist. We're actually an affiliate of the Southern Baptist. But I remember our church was really excited about men need to disciple men. Have you ever heard that before? And so I'm this, you know, 20-something-year-old young man. I'm like, okay, i got to find a guy and disciple him. So we, we got together, and we discipled, or at least we thought we discipled. And we would meet at McDonald's every Thursday morning, and we would spend time together. But about six months in, I realized, hey, I know a lot about him. I know a lot about his family. I know a lot about his construction project, but we haven't really opened this. And what I began to realize is that we actually weren't growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. We were just growing as dudes in relationship. Now, please do not misunderstand me. It is appropriate to talk about family, to talk about construction, to talk about baseball. In fact, that is next to godliness, baseball. (laughs) But beloved, in, in order for the process of discipleship to actually be taking place, it is introduced by teaching. And not just reading the scripture. I asked you to be in Luke 4. Go back to Luke 4. He finishes reading Isaiah 61, which is about himself. And in verse 20, it says, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's the posture of teaching. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, what is the context of this? Well, here, as well as Mark 6, it says that Jesus was back where? In his hometown, in Nazareth. Let me just back up just a little bit. Let's recalibrate and remember where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We are ending Jesus' ministry 2.0 and beginning Jesus' ministry 3.0. Jesus' ministry 1.0 was he taught, he healed, and he cast out demons. What do you think is going to happen to popularity when you do that? It's going to skyrocket. But at the end of 1.0, remember there was controversy. Remember in chapter 3, verse 21, his family came from Nazareth to do what? To sign up to hand out buttons? No, they wanted to seize him because they thought he was out of his 
Then you have the scribes that came down from Jerusalem. And remember what they publicly declared. They said, Jesus is not an agent of Yahweh. He's actually an agent of Satan. Version 1.0 did not end very well. Well, version 2.0 has had a lot of similarities. He's healed. He's preached. He's cast out demons. And his popularity is skyrocketing. And we would expect that if he's returning to his hometown, this is going to be different than 1.0, right? I mean, this is popular Jesus. People are coming from all over the Middle East to see this guy, and he's from Nazareth, which, by the way, can I just give you an aside? You know what's interesting about the town of Nazareth? It is not mentioned in the entire Old Testament. So how is it a town when we arrive at the New Testament? Well, What happened is, as the Jews came back from exile, a lot of towns were built up or created and named after tribal ancestry. So this group that started Nazareth were descendants of Judah, which who's the most famous son that comes from Judah? David. In the Old Testament, it was David. And so what they did is they would actually name their towns from something that was associated with David. And in this particular case, they named their town Netzer, which is the Hebrew name or Hebrew term for branch, which you can write down Isaiah 11, verse 1, that from the stump of Jesse will come a root, and out of that root will come a branch. And so what these descendants of Judah were saying is that we are identifying ourselves with the root of Jesse, looking forward to the branch, the netzer, and that's why I think Matthew says in Matthew 2.23, this was to fill that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. It's interesting, if you don't do it now, but if you go to Matthew 2.23, that is the only fulfillment formula that Matthew uses where there is not a footnote to show where it's in the Old Testament. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where it says Messiah will be a Nazarene. But I think what Matthew was doing is he was drawing from Isaiah 11, saying this is the Netzer, this is the branch. And he actually came from the town of Netzer. Most of you guys, your eyes are glassing over, but a couple of you are smiling, so that was for you. (laughs) Nazareth, hometown hero. The people are fixing their eyes on him. And at this point, we might say, Jesus, just stop. Just stop. You've read the scriptures. It was a good reading. Just stop. That's often what we do, don't we, in discipleship? We keep it surface. Often in discipleship, we are comfortable with the surface-level conversations in small group. We don't dig. We don't teach. Why is that? Well, let me give you four reasons that I came up with. You could probably come up with more. I think one of the reasons we don't teach in the process of discipleship is we we sense that we have a lack of expertise. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like you can never teach somebody scripture? Do you guys realize that all of us are inadequate when it comes to teaching? Especially this guy up here. It's funny, I I am reminded every week how inadequate I am to do what I'm doing right now. In fact, I pray a prayer every Sunday. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. I did it this morning, twice now. It's John Piper's acronym, APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. 
And I sit here and I pray, I admit I can't do this. I admit that I'm not adequate. You know, we were in Clearwater, Florida a couple weeks ago. That's where I played baseball for two summers in the Phillies minor league system. And I got to go out on the field. I got to drive by the new stadium. And I told my wife this. I said, you know, I'm 46, but I think I could actually show up tonight and I could play and do well in this minor league game. She just laughed. (laughs) But that's the kind of confidence. I I could play. And I really think I could perform. But there is not a Sunday when I don't prepare to stand up these steps when I just think, I can't do this. And isn't that how God works? God works that way because he, he doesn't want us to be doing the things that we just are like, yeah, I got this. Because he wants the glory. Beloved, all of us lack expertise, but we're to teach. Number two, our own weaknesses of personality. Anybody ever told you you talk too much? Anybody tell you you don't talk enough? And before you know it, we're we're in this way of thinking that we're evaluating ourselves and we're thinking, okay, I know I should say something. I know I should point this person to the gospel of Christ. I know I should teach something from the Bible, but oh, my personality. Number three, we want to avoid being preachy. When I played ball, one of the nicknames that my teammates gave me was Reverend. That hurts sometimes. We don't want to be the person at the office that's the preacher. We don't want to be the student in the classroom that's referred to as the preacher. And before you know it, we just don't teach at all. Number four, the audience. Aren't there certain audiences that are very difficult to teach? Do you want to know the most challenging audience I've ever found? People who are familiar with me. Because they know us. I mean, what what you see here in this text is the people begin asking questions in Mark 6. They're like, what is this? Who is this? I mean, they're they're, they're looking at him and they're saying, okay, this is the non-jock. Don't we do that when we go back to our reunions? All the jocks look at the guy who was like the nerd who never said anything, who never could do anything on a sports field, and yet they're a VP of some huge company. And all the jocks that have made nothing of their lives are like, who is this? That's what's happening here. In fact, look what it says in verse 3. It says, is this not the what? What does it say? Is this not the carpenter? Now, this was not derogatory. Carpenters were respected in Israel. What this is saying is he just has a common upbringing just like us. There's nothing special about him. It then says, is this not the son of Mary? Which, by the way, I think this was a derogatory term. Some scholars believe this indicates that Joseph had died, and I think he had died by now. But in Israel, even when your father had died, you would still be known as the father or the son of so-and-so. I think they were drawing attention to his illegitimate birth from their perspective. And they say, is he not the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Which, by the way, wouldn't that have been something to think about how Jesus would have looked at Judas and Simon had the Holy Spirit revealed what the future would be? I just think that's an interesting side point. And then it says his sisters, are they not with us? Then it says they took offense at him. Why? Go back to chapter 4 of Luke. He 
He says in verse 21, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that interesting? Now the response initially is going to be, hey, this is actually very interesting. We're intrigued. And it'll actually say they're astonished. But Jesus went beyond surface. He went beyond familiarity. And what did he teach? He taught the truth of God's word. So how do we grow as teachers? Three ways. I would encourage you to write this down. You want to grow as a teacher, and it doesn't have anything to do with going to seminary. Number one, be a learner. Be a learner. The greatest way to become a teacher is to be a learner first. You learn from the scriptures. You, I'm authorizing you right now to go out and buy, well, not right now, after the service. Go out and buy AirPods Pro. They are amazing. They stick in your ears. You can do transparency mode. You can do noise cancellation. I put those things on when I mow. I put it on when I work out. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm listening to preaching. I'm listening to books on audio. Learn. What's amazing is when you, when you learn, then you go to number two, share it. Share it. Just share with somebody. This is what I've learned. If you're excited about it, even though they may not get it, they're going to at least listen Share. Then number three, be creative. Be creative. In fact, a phrase I love using is look for red apple conversations. Throw something out there about Christianity or about church. Listen for people who are hurting. You've got a coworker who's going through a divorce. That could be a red apple conversation. Because you throw something from scripture, something from the gospel out there and see if they take a bite. Also be creative by going to kids' ministry. The the best place to start to become a teacher of the word is to teach in kids' ministry and then go to small groups and then go to Bible studies and maybe someday you might be brought in to be one of the elders who can actually preach on a Sunday morning. Those are opportunities to teach. But beloved, the example of Jesus is that the process of discipleship is introduced by teaching. Interesting, Matthew 28, 20 teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Number two, discipleship is initiated by faith. And I I chose the word initiated because it starts with an I, but also because it includes two aspects. It's how something begins, and it also means bringing someone into a group officially. And I think the question that we must ask is, what is the minimum that is required to become a disciple? That's an important question, isn't it? In fact, eternity hangs in the balance. In fact, I I hear this a lot at at funerals. And people will ask, how do I know if my loved one was saved? Beloved, can I just say that's a question we should be asking before they die. That's a question we should be addressing before they die. Ah, but it's awkward, and I know. But again, you learn, you share, you be creative. You plant and you water seeds. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. But it is God who saves people. The pressure is off us. I was just talking to one of the volunteers in kids' ministry this morning, and she said, you know, when I learned about divine sovereignty, the pressure was off. It doesn't mean that we don't evangelize. In fact, as as a proponent of God's sovereignty, as a Calvinist myself, I evangelize more. Why? Because I realize it's not on, oh, did I say the right thing? Did I, did I speak up? Should I shut up? No, 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 I share, and then it's God that does the work. Amen? 
What is the minimum that is required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, it says here in verse 2 that the people heard, and they were astonished. It says in chapter 4 of Luke, in verse 22, I think, that they spoke well of him, and he had a gracious manner about him. It's like the person who, as the pastor is walking out, they shake your hand and say, good message, pastor, and I appreciate that. But is that the minimum that is required to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus says no. And you see that beginning in verse 4. Look at what it says. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. You can write out to the side. That is the famous phrase that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. And beloved, let me just speak to the married people right now. Don't let this axiom play out. Something is an axiom because there is enough truth in it that it becomes stated truth. And isn't it true that about a, a week or a month or maybe if you're really good after a year of being married, all of a sudden you're kind to everybody else but not to your spouse? Not gospel lenses, beloved. Not Christ followers. But there's a reason why is that it is an axiom. It's because there's enough evidence, there's enough patterns that this is generally true. It says in verse 5, he could not do mighty works there. Which can I just explain and clarify something here? There, there's some extreme misunderstandings with this statement. The first one is with regards to a movement called the Word of Faith movement. If you're not familiar with that, it's a, a movement that preaches a different gospel than the biblical gospel. It puts a high emphasis on the faith that you have, that if you have enough faith, then that will somehow trip God into doing what you want him to do. Nothing can be further from the truth. They will take passages like Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20 that says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will be removed. And They will draw conclusions from passages like this that the people just didn't have enough faith. Beloved, I submit to you that that's not what the rest of Scripture says. And if all you're doing is reading a verse like Matthew 17, 20, if all you're doing is reading this verse right here, then you might be able to draw that conclusion. But Scripture interprets Scripture. And when we see that, and when we study the Gospel of Mark, you realize that Jesus did his miracles. Why? as a response to gospel faith. Would you write that down? Jesus' miracles that he performed were not because the paralyzed man had enough faith that Jesus could do miracles and the thermometer was raising and ding, miracle. That's not what Jesus did. The pattern of Jesus doing miracles was gospel intentionality. In fact, that's what Luke says in Luke chapter four. Read it later. Luke explains from Old Testament that there were myriads of poor people, myriads of lepers, and yet the prophets chose one in each category to actually bless and to heal. Write down John chapter 5, Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida, it says that there were myriads of lame. How many did he heal? One. Now, let me make sure that you don't misunderstand this, because the second misapplication of a passage like this is that we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus 
and do good to everybody and end there. We hear people talk about Jesus just did good to everybody, and so we should be doing good to everybody. No, he did good to people for the purpose of gospel faith. He responded to gospel faith. He did activities for the purpose of pointing people to gospel faith. And so listen, hear me when I say this. We are to do good to as many people as we possibly can, but for the purpose of gospel faith. We don't just feed people to feed people because what happens tomorrow morning, they're hungry again. We don't just put coats on people's backs just to help them get warm because guess what? In the summer, they're going to be hot. We do these activities with gospel faith as our primary objective because that's what Jesus did. And he responded to gospel-producing What is gospel-producing faith? Well, I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. I introduced this to you a couple weeks ago, but we'll revisit it again, that gospel faith is action-producing confidence that Jesus is who God's word says he is and will be exactly what we need him to be in every and all circumstances. Do you see what's important about this definition? He will be what he says he will be. He will meet what he says are our needs. See, that is different than the word of faith. The word of faith movement says, no, what I identify as my need is what I have faith God will produce. And if I have enough, he will do it. That's not gospel authentic faith. Gospel authentic faith submits itself to what the word of God says about himself and submits itself to what God says are my needs. So if healing happens, great. It's so I can do more missions and discipleship. If he doesn't heal me, it's because he determined that's what was best for me. And we submit ourselves to those definitions, to those expectations, so that when we have it, it is a confidence, so no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what storms we experience in our lives, we're not cowardly and run, we stick firm in our faith. So beloved, the initiation of faith, the initiation of discipleship is gospel-producing, authentic And Jesus was amazed in verse 6. Usually it's the crowds and the disciples who are amazed, but verse 6 says he marveled. Why? What does it say? Because of their unbelief. And and I love the Greek. The Greek is more vivid. In the Greek, the word pistis or pistia is the term that's translated faith. But whenever you add an alpha or an A in front of a word, it makes it the exact opposite. And so what it says here is that he marveled because of their apostia, because of the opposite of true faith. They sure had faith. They wanted him to produce miracles. In fact, that's what it says in Luke 4. No doubt you will say, have me quote the proverb, physician, heal thyself. No doubt you will do what you did in Capernaum because this is your hometown. They had expectations of Jesus, give us what we want, not we surrender to your definition of our need. Beloved, discipleship is introduced by teaching. It's initiated by faith. Number three, it's issued by dependence. Don't worry, point four is like really quick. We are issued by dependence. This is a military term that means to equip, to equip. 
to issue soldiers what they need. We see military vocabulary here. Verse 7, it says he called the 12. This is like a, a drill sergeant who says, everybody up! Or the drums begin to play. Or the trumpet begins to sound. On me, everybody at attention. That's what Jesus is doing here. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, which I love God's word. He sent them out two by two to protect them, but also, do you remember what Deuteronomy 19, I think it's 15, says? That a Jew was not supposed to accept a testimony unless there were two or four more witnesses. So he sends them out two by two. He gives them authority. I love this, that the authority that they were going to exercise comes from Jesus, which, reminder, beloved, that's discipleship, isn't it? The message that we have, our ability to convey it, the fact that it has transformed us, it's not us, it's him. So he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. This is what Mark said back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that he would do, and now's the time. In verse 8, he charged them, like, here's your instructions. And it reminds me of the 1989 movie. It's one of my favorites, the movie Glory. Maybe some of you have seen it. Denzel, Morgan Freeman. Matthew Broderick, 54th Massachusetts, African-American regiment. I remember that scene when they're all, they're all training and preparing, and they, they're using broomsticks for guns. And they're walking in the mud, and many of them don't have shoes. And I remember that scene when the crates came out. Do you remember that? And the crowbars began to take the tops off. One of the guys, I think it was Morgan Freeman, is handing out, ooh, 57 caliber infield rifle musket. Best in the world here, boys. And one of them picks up that rifle and says, ooh, I can knock something down with this. And they're excited because now they have what they need. And then they go to the next station and they get their uniforms. And many of them get shoes that they hadn't had in months and maybe years. And they're beginning to march. They're beginning to get better. They're actually able to perform in the battlefield. And that's what we're expecting to see here. Jesus charges them to take nothing. What? Take nothing for your journey except a staff. The disciples were like, okay, well, maybe you're meaning like, don't take anything that you don't need. Well, no, he clarifies here and says, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. What? I mean, this sounds like a mission organization that has lost its rocker, hasn't it? Fallen off. I don't even know how to say that. It's not in my notes. Like, they're getting out their suitcases. They're getting out their clothes. And the mission agency calls and says, take nothing. So Jesus is saying here. But is that what he's prescribing? Again, biblical interpretation. If all we're doing is reading this, we might walk away and say, oh, I guess missionaries aren't supposed to pack. I guess pastors aren't supposed to have money. Thank God that means that's not true. (laughs) There's a message that Jesus is giving to his disciples about discipleship, and it's further assisted in verse 9. Wear sandals and don't put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, the, the phrase there means to be welcomed in. In, in the Middle East, hospitality was a, a, an important virtue. And so these are people who are not only receiving them in the house, but they're also receiving the message. And it says, stay there until you depart from there. I think what Jesus was saying there is don't look for an upgrade. When I provide for you, receive my provision and be satisfied with it. 
And verse 11, if any place will not receive you, and again, this is not just hospitality. Look at what it says. And they will not listen to you. They will not receive the message. They will not embrace the message. If, if people do that, then it says in verse 11, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Beloved, what is Jesus' point here in a rather difficult statement? Well, first of all, a quote that I'll ask the team to put up there is this, that the process of discipleship rarely fits neatly within the horizontal strategies and expectations of man. Isn't this true? The process of discipleship rarely, not, look, there is reason to study people who are successful in business. There's reason to study people who are successful secular leaders. All I'm saying here is that as you look at the Bible, the process of discipleship rarely fits neatly into all of those strategies. Isn't your own life an an example of this? Don't you have experiences in your life that you wouldn't choose that cause you to grow in your walk with him like no other process? That's the first aspect. But then I, I love what Mark Strauss, one of the commentators for the Gospel of Mark that I've been reading says, as he says, there's, there's three points that Jesus is giving to his disciples that we can actually apply in our own lives. Would you write these down? Number one, cultivate a simple lifestyle to avoid becoming enamored by the fleeting things of the world. What a great reminder this is. As Jesus is sending out the disciples, okay, they are now officially sent out from the most famous rabbi in all of Israel. They're probably excited. And he's giving them instruction to remind them of this principle that as followers of Jesus Christ, discipleship is about dependence. Discipleship is not about being enamored by the things of the world. Now, what this is not saying is that you can't have nice things. For somebody to have a house in the ancient Middle East that was big enough to be able to take two people and to be able to provide for them meant that these people had to be well off. There's nothing wrong with being well off. But cultivate a mindset and a lifestyle so that you and your kids and your spouse are not enamored by what shines and what is flashy. By everything that Solomon said in Ecclesiastes is about. Remember that study? Oh, it's my favorite study so far. Solomon doesn't say don't drink and enjoy. He doesn't say don't eat and enjoy. He doesn't say don't enjoy entertainment. He says don't pursue it as your satisfaction. Don't expect out of it what it was never intended to deliver. But so many times the world does this, and we do it, don't we? We buy into somehow my spouse is supposed to deliver. Somehow my kids are supposed to deliver. Somehow, as a single, if I could just get married, it will deliver. Somehow, if I could just reach the next level of my job, it will deliver. Somehow, if I can have the newest, if I could have more, if I could have bigger, it will somehow satisfy. And Jesus is providing the principle that Solomon gives 12 chapters over and over and over again. No. Only God will satisfy. So be careful to cultivate a simple lifestyle to avoid becoming enamored by the fleeting things of the world. Number two, depend on God rather than your own talents and resources. 
just about every meeting that I have on my calendar, I go to it and I take a deep breath. And when I do, I'm reminded of breath. I'm remembered of the Hebrew term ruach. That is the term spirit or breath. And I remember I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit. I don't care if it's a friend that I know, that we've had many meetings. I don't care if it's going to be a positive topic. We are dependent on God, not our own talents. Number three, do not show worldly partiality in ministry. That's what he's saying here in verse verse 10. Don't upgrade. Don't look for the person who can deliver something to you. See, listen, worldly partiality is I treat somebody in a certain way because of how they impact me. That's worldly partiality. There is partiality in the church. The Bible says that certain people who serve in the church are worthy of a double honor. It's not partiality is sin. It's worldly partiality is sin. I respond to you because of the way you impact me, either positive or negative. That has no place in ministry. So what are they supposed to do? I love verse 11. Shake the dust off of your feet. Man, on the podcast, we would cover this more, but we don't have time. What does he mean here? He means don't get bogged down by rejection. Would you write that down? Don't get bogged down by rejection. You shake the dust off, leaving no residue for you as you go out, leaving no residue for them. You leave them to the process of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean you don't pray for them. That doesn't mean you don't encourage other people to go. But as far as you're concerned, you, you warn them two times, and then third time, you leave. And it says, don't get bogged down. Don't take this memory in and lead to depression. Oh, I must be a horrible evangelist. No, you do what Jesus did in verse 6. He goes on to the villages, teaching. That's what it means to cast the dust off of your feet. Oh, so much could be said more, but we got to move on to four. So we introduce discipleship by teaching. We initiate it by faith. The issue is dependence, but number four, discipleship is implemented by participation. And they participated, verse seven, so they went out. They, They proclaimed. They cast out many demons. They anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. But look at what their message was, verse 12. People should repent. Beloved, this is the epicenter of discipleship. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen repentance is to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude this is another way to describe how you demonstrate faith to become a disciple it's a complete change but it begins with a change in your thoughts and your attitude. You, you lay down your definitions. You, you lay down your desires. You, you lay down your expectations and you pick up his. It completely transforms your thinking. Completely transforms your attitude. Man, I hate that second part. Don't you like to just be able to go through the motions but have a stinky attitude? It's not what repentance is. Repentance affects the attitude, but listen, beloved, it produces change in behavior. That's what I love about James. James is not saying the change of behavior produces salvation. He says it will result from it, though. I mean, if you have completely transformed your thoughts and attitudes through repentance, it will change the way you live. It will change the way you speak, progressively so, but it will change. The patterns of your life will demonstrate change 
This is disciples.